Well, hello, it's Gary, listening to Thinking Out Loud. Today, uh, in an attempt to continue my theme of kind of talking about issues kind of parallel to the ongoing Trump shit show, but without having to talk about him incessantly for a full hour, today what I thought I'd talk about is... Uh, Political cliches or political euphemisms. These kind of common terms we hear often uh, over and over again. But they're these sort of non-specific uh, code words for things that kind of sound like they mean something specific, but they, they don't. They sort of imply something, but they never really. Uh, and the actual actions by a lot of the, you know, the particular group broadcasting that particular theme or motto or the political cliches, quite clearly obviously different than whatever that um, slogan, political cliche euphemism is actually you know, saying. So the first one, I'm going to start with small government. What is small? What is big? What is the definition of either? I'm a, you know, a liberal. So I like the idea of small government. Sounds great to me. Yeah. Yeah. However, there's one particular organization that uses that term most specifically, you know, that's the Republican Party. They use the term small government. They are the small government party. But what is their definition of small government? What is their definition of small? What, what specifically is the size and scope of the government? Well, the Republican Party, uh, the government is used uh, to spend its time uh, catering to the interests of the wealthy, um, giving the military more power, um, in some cases, creating laws that kind of restrict personal freedom, um, and then kind of spending their time fighting any sort of proposals that may, um, you know, create benefits for the masses. Um, you know, they also signed into law many years ago the Patriot Act, which gives the right, the, the government, the right to spy on its citizens. Um, how they get to kind of label themselves the small government party, uh, especially now as the particular, you know, person that they nominated back in 2016, who's now, um, you know, in his fourth year, entering his fourth year of president, his final, hopefully final few months as president, and then he'll kind of just kind of disappear from, you know, television and whatever just kind of go away but that guy that they picked he's he's a, actually a fascist uh, and fascism is about as far removed from small government as you can get authoritarian um, you know violent oppressive violently oppressive type of government is, is not small government you know people are marching in the streets voicing their opinion you know in huge mass there's so many of them 
that some people unaffiliated with that group are spray-painting buildings because they can kind of use the big massive crowd as kind of a cover to cause mischief that's what they're doing they're causing property damage and mischief but uh, in a fascist government because there's some people causing property damage the entire group gets punished even the people not doing property damage even the people just kind of exercising their rights and assembling in the streets to voice their opinion that's it that's all they were doing so you know but because there's other people unrelated to the actual movement causing mischief and property damage the entire mass of people gets punished and that's what it is it's punishment you know the secret service this secret police type thing comes and arrives and you know starts harassing people beating people up um, you know shooting rubber bullets and tear gas at people regardless of whether they're suspected of being a you know mischief maker or not um, yeah, that, that's not small government. Uh, the war on drugs is not small government. War on drugs is big, 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 massive government. Kind of a in-your-face, kind of in-your-shit, kind of harassing you and uh, kind of dictating to you how you need to live. Uh, not, not small government at all. Uh, but it's just this sort of term that gets to get said, said a lot on TV and publicans. I don't think they've been able to get away with as much recently trying to claim that they're the small government party. They are the big government party. The deficit has also increased while they've been in office too. Another big one with political euphemisms, political cliches, are the two slogans uh, describing the, the, the two options you get as a human being uh, to define your position on the abortion issue. And those two sides that you're given to pick from are either pro-life or pro-choice that's it that's what you get to be one or the other there is no explanation of what you truly believe and feel about the, the issue it's basically either you have to say pro-life or pro-choice that's it you know so the people that are anti-abortion that's what the pro-life is more specifically because the pro-life pro-life is a slogan that was created by the people that were trying to make sure that abortions become illegal. They use the term pro-life. It's a, as far as a marketing, it's a great term because it really stirs emotions. It implies something. Pro-life. Now, are the politicians who are describing themselves as pro-life that that means that they're also for, obviously, you know, universal health care. And you know, free education and stuff, because those improve the quality of life for living, breathing human beings here on this planet. Uh, no, no. So that that's why it's kind of genius of them of using pro-life, because it implies a, a a a robust view of life, and and you know, focused on benefiting life it would also you know you would think that it would imply that they are very understanding of of the need to protect the environment because the environment is our life you know i mean with we live on this planet we have to take care of it otherwise you know people die you know but none of those things really have anything to do with what 
is commonly referred to as pro-life. Now, even though the, the people that are fighting against abortion, wanting to make it illegal, refer to themselves as pro-life, I think it would behoove news outlets to be a little bit more clear about what that specific movement is. It's an it's abolishing abortion. It's an anti-abortion movement. Okay, that's what it specifically is. It's not pro-life in the most broad sense, just those two words, pro-life. They are pro-life. Right, meaning life. <laughs> you know, like life that is here and, you know, on, in the wide variety of levels, you know. Right, like universal health care. So like when you get sick and, you know, need healing, you go get it easily so you can continue living your life, pro-life, right? But in too many of the cases, we find that it's just not the case. In many cases, people, now there probably is some variance, of course, but, but that's, the, that's the problem with that particular slogan to describe the anti-abortion movement. Um, there's plenty of people in the, that movement, pro-life, who are not real big on protecting life that is here you know they're very concerned about potential new life that hasn't you know truly you know revealed itself yet it's potential it's a possibility a lot, a lot of things there's a reason that a pregnancy is nine months you know yeah but um and, and they're they're entitled to their opinion about it and all that. It's just, you know, you know, if you're going to call yourself pro-life because you're against abortion, okay, but go all in, go go all in though, pro-life. What other kind of things, you know, what other kinds of um, policies and such encourage life, you know, so. Some poor people from a, a neighboring country um, are, are walking across the desert, uh, and technically that's trespassing. You know, the the, the pro-life move would be to provide shelter for those people, help aid and assist them, and, and, and get them the paperwork they need to do, so that they can can move you know move on and, and continue living their lives. Putting them in a cage, though. Uh, especially children, is not very pro-lifey, you know, that's not very pro-life, it, it's kind of, you know, inhumane, you know, it, it's not encouraging of life, you know, so I think the people that are just strictly anti-abortion among the pro-life group, I think they need to be a little bit more explicit on that, you know, because they're not really pro-life. They're anti-abortion. Some of the people that are anti-abortion are very much pro-life. You know, they believe in protecting the environment. They believe in pro providing universal health care as a right. Providing universal, you know, education as well. Things to help improve, improve the quality of life on this planet. Yeah. Of course, the other flip side is the pro-choice. <clears throat> Someone, when if they're in a position where they are considering an abortion, just the considering is a choice. And for some people, in a similar where you know it would be clear and cut for them that they would just they would not go through with it. You know, their life is in danger or whatever. You know, 
you could still choose not to. It's not a mandate to get one. So, you know, even if your life was in danger. Um, so, that's just one that, because it, people have very specific views on that particular topic, on that particular issue. And the government, though, just, the main thing is that the government really shouldn't be involved in that. If the various two sides want to voice their opinions about it, okay. Government doesn't need to be involved, though. You know, if you want to... And then the other thing was pro-life. So, sex education. You're, you're going to invest in things that help decrease the number of abortions that are, you know, people are seeking out. Not by, you know, banning them, but by just providing more resources, you know. Better funded and trained sex, you know, crimes, detectives and such social workers, sex education, all those kind of investments, you know, to help some of the things, you know, there, there, there's always going to be some, but you can, if that's a real big concern, do you think there's too many abortions happening in the world? Why did they happen? What is the reason? Are you doing any research on why? Do you care about the plight of others at all? You just have your opinion on what it is to, in your mind based off your particular experience, but everyone else is wrong. Well, okay. I mean, I, for me, it's just kind of a putting myself in other people's shoes type thing. And, um, yeah, uh, I, I think being unwilling to understand other people's plight at all and just uh, to immediately, you know, it, it, I don't think is very pro-lifey, you know, but with the uh, pro-life, pro-choice type thing, pro those two sides, uh, you also get family values, there's another re classic Republican one, uh, not one that, that they've tried to uh, pull off as much lately, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, again, the guy that is the current head of the Republican Party is a famous con man who cheated on his wives and Married three times, bankrupt of companies, and kind of a famous, kind of vulgar, rude, um, dishonest man. Um, so you know, obviously not a not a not a virtuous person in any way. Um, it, if the Republican Party truly was an organization that cared about family values, they wouldn't have you know nominated such a you know despicable human being. Uh, just because they thought he had the best chance to win, you know, they they would be concerned with his lack of virtue. Um, but they were not; they didn't care because family values is not something they care about. That's because we need to define what the Republican Party, when they says family values, what they're really talking about. They're talking about classic 1950s idyllic view of family you know two kids car garage you know uh, mother and father and the mother is primarily doing domestic duties and the father works and brings home paycheck or something this sort of idyllic leave it to beaver sort of idea of what a family is 
and they're sort of defining what specifically a family is, even though there's <clears throat> probably the majority of people that don't have such a exact specific family structure. You know, people get divorced, uh, people kind of make things work with different arrangements, or and there's you know people who aren't straight, people who are homosexual. There's people that identify with different. You know, it's a big wide world. There's there's over five billion of us on this planet. That, you know, we're not one or the other type thing. It's kind of, you know, the government really shouldn't be involved in those types of things. If you have your certain idea of what a family is, then you you live your certain idea. My idea was I was always uh you know it takes a village to raise a child type thing, and I was one of those village children type thing. You know. Uh, parents divorced, so kind of went from back and forth, and uh, so the idea that idea of like this is what a family is is this, and yeah, you know, call my dad and my stepdad dad. I call them both dad, um, you know, and uh, yeah. But parents live in they lived in different states. So it's been part of the most of the year in. Washington and the other part of the year in Oregon, my dad's, and, you know, summer and Christmas break and stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, as much as I tried to have that perfect kind of, you know, this is what a family is thing, it did, did for a little while, it, it's almost like it's too perfect or something, I don't know. Um, you know, to me, I think it's just family values really should be just, you know, being willing to look out for your neighbor, look out for others, you know. Set a good example for your children. Leave, try to leave the world better uh, than when you got it. Um, you know, basically just kind of having respect for others. You know, the, the sort of virtuous principles that are taught by you know Jesus and such. Um, that's family values. More like you know, these things we should be doing. You know, helping, feeding the hungry, curing the sick, and such. If you really valued family, you certainly would be for universal health care. If you had family values, you would certainly understand the justification for free education. Yeah, that that increased the value of your family. Family, that type of value, you know. You get a better education, better opportunity. You know work hard and you can do well in your study and earn a degree, learn training, learn skills. I mean, yeah, be, be honorable, work hard, uh, be virtuous, have love, truth, honor in your life. Yeah, those are all great family values, but banning gay marriage, that's not really good family values, you know. In the Republican Party, though, they use this term family values it's like it, if you believe marriage is between a man and a woman then you the person that believes that well then when you get married you you know what type of person you're gonna marry so cool good for you man right on good I'm straight so when I was married I married a woman that um, would but the way I like to think of it is uh, a few years ago one of my rugby one of my old rugby teammates got married 
It would have been weird if he had married a woman because he was gay. He was, he was a gay dude, you know. Cool dude and all that. Just, you know, he's one of my rugby teammates. But yeah, he was, he was gay. So when he did get married, he, he married a dude because he's gay. Why would he marry a woman? He's, he's not heterosexual. how he is so uh, I'm straight so yeah when I married I married a woman but uh, you know um, I don't I don't really know why the government has to get involved in saying what type of who you can marry and who you can't like why is it why is it their business and again if, if you believe oh Mary, it says right here it's not my name okay cool man you, you know you believe that so you do you you, you know what do you care if it's someone else's marriage? It's someone else's marriage. Just you do you, you know. Focus on your own. Yeah. So if you believe that's a quote you're gonna make, then you probably then it's probably some dude saying it. Well, then make sure you marry a woman then, because you believe that you believe that it has to be between man and woman. So the reason, but also, you know. For me, it's because, you know, I would marry one because I'm straight. Probably never getting married again, though, because, uh, you know, it just have Well, yeah, I don't know. You never know. But uh, I've already been divorced, so it's not really forever or whatever. So there's already kind of a... Yeah. I don't know. Life is weird. And uh, I don't really... Like the idea of the government kind of dictating to us what is what is the idyllic family when what should it look like you know and just they just need to kind of stay out of that. You have your opinions, fine, but the main thing is small government. So that's big government. The government trying to spending time and taxpayer dollars and their, their time in office trying to ban gay marriage. It's like no, it's not harming anybody. It's a certificate. Those two people are living their lives. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it doesn't affect you, so just fuck off. Just, you know, just leave it alone, man, you know? I don't, I don't understand people that just get all riled up by other people's business that doesn't have anything to do with them, you know? Like, just don't worry about it, you know? This is weird. You know, next one we got a tax reform. This is a classic euphemism used by uh, the Republican Party. Tax reform sort of implies a sort of positive, sort of um, uh, kind of improving or, or, you know, elevating the effectiveness of a particular tax policy. Tax reform, you know, we're reforming these taxes, making them better or more efficient or something. Not, not really. Yeah, no. Tax reform uh, for the Republican Party means they're going to cut taxes for the wealthy and cut taxes for corporations. That's that's what tax reform means. Um, that's going to mean less money is coming in to the federal government, so there will also be, need to be need to be the uh, justification to cut funding to various programs, and those would be things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, infrastructure investment education, those kind of things. Those Any funding to those kinds of various programs uh, will be cut. 
uh, because of the necessary need for tax reform, quote-unquote. Tax reform is cutting taxes for the wealthy and cutting taxes for corporations, which sounds better. You know, they mean the same thing, but if Republican Party candidate is preaching to, you know, 10,000, uh, you know, union workers and said, we need to cut taxes for the wealthy and cut taxes for corporations. What kind of response do you think you're going to get? But if a candidate goes up there and says, we need tax reform, you know, you might even get some cheers, you know, some clapping. It's just a shorter way that's kind of like um, truth speak in 1984. Not good, double plus good type thing, you know. So tax reform is just two words put together in a very particular order that means cutting taxes for the wealthy and cutting taxes for corporations. It's just a lot simpler to say tax reform. And best part, people hear tax reform and they actually think whatever they want to think. <laughs> it, it means a very specific thing, cutting taxes for wealthy and cutting taxes for corporations. That's what tax reform, when a Republican Party candidate is, is saying it, or a politician, that's what it means. But saying tax reform to regular people, they can think whatever they want. They, so they think it could mean, you know, reducing their taxes, the working class person, even though it doesn't mean that. But the Republican Party will be more than happy to let those people think that. And uh, some, in some cases, those people have thought that kind of thing for decade after decade. The Republican Party is going to lower my taxes, and it's going to improve my quality of life. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> um, you know, they might brag about the fact that a waitress in Ohio, you know, got a $1.50 raise you know, every eight hours and kind of really brag about how much more money she's got in her pocket. She's got an extra buck fifty every paycheck because they, you know, quote unquote, lowered taxes. And there is, you hear these specific people that benefited. They got a couple extra bucks, like literally a couple extra bucks, you know, and that's like literally what they'll do. You know, they'll kind of brag about here. Here's some specific cases of working class people who have a few extra dollars. Yeah, you know, and, and that's supposed to be like, oh, see, we did it. Yeah, that, the waitress has two extra dollars in her paycheck. Um, thank you, government, you know. Um, now, these big, massive banks that have multiple, you know, that are worth billions of dollars, they also got money, too. You know, they got more money, too, and certainly a lot more than just two dollars. But, you know, that's kind of what you get with, with tax reform. The Republican Party is saying it. it has, it's the, the kind of changes to tax policy that will have no benefit to the mass of working class people and will only allow those with the most money uh, to have more wealth and power. And, and that, that's it. That's, that's what tax reform is. So, really got to watch uh, Republican candidates, especially when they just sort of use that vague euphemism. Remember what it means. It means they're going to cut taxes for the wealthy and cut taxes for corporations, which is going to have no benefit to you, the working class person, at all.
nothing. You get nothing. There is no such thing as trickle-down economics. The way to better think of it is that it's, because it, it's kind of implied in the name trickle-down, what it really means is there, there is some stuff that kind of trickles, but it, it, it's such a small trickle that it'll, it'll only go to like a s small little tiny groups here and there. And it is such a small trickle that other areas dries up. <laughs> you know, like some people lose their jobs and stuff and, you know, you know, like the cost of living in some areas goes up and they're not able to make enough to offset it. So yeah, tax cuts for the wealthy actually creates an extra burden on the working class, not an improvement in any way. That thing. The sad thing, of course, is that it's a policy that's been pursued and engaged in many times. It continues to achieve the exact same result every time. There's a surge in value of big corporate entities that can gain more power and buy back more stock quality of life of the masses stays exactly the same if not drops a bit the wealthiest class improves a bit and then after you know a surge for a bit the economy starts sagging and sagging pretty dramatically because all the resources are being devoted to a tiny group not to the people providing all the production not the people doing all the work and so eventually we get into basically a, like a recession type state after a sort of a, a brief high of a sugar rush of people with massive amounts of discretionary income for a brief period of time throwing money around exchanging hands values of companies kind of fluctuating for a bit that'll settle down for a bit because there's no real true output to to truly reflect any of the things that they're doing it's just values of paper perceived values you know so it's not really there's, there's not much increased doing, creating, innovating, really, not truly. Uh, the masses are just kind of still grinding away, and they're the ones doing all the work. Um, so th there's tax reform, Republican Party's talking about it, zero benefit to the working class, by and large. You know, nothing. And in fact, uh, eventually it becomes an even bigger burden. The cost of the living starts going up quality of life probably starts going down funding to various roads and bridges gets delayed doesn't get done at all start getting more potholes and stuff like that um, you know cities that are weren't maybe the wealthiest cities before they start falling behind a little quicker yeah so it's um, it's a very devastating type of tax policy because it, it really needs to be kind of the opposite it's kind of outlier uh, flush with cash folks you know that have exponentially more money they definitely don't need a cut in their taxes uh, they're, they're well they're they're beyond good I mean they they are set for life uh, they have the kind of wealth that is that could be maintained in perpetuity without really doing anything you know most of them do not work uh, many of them especially the ones born into those upper echelons of society, you know, uh, have never worked uh, like a real job job, you know, and they have no idea what the concept even means, really. It's kind of confusing to them. And in fact, uh, some people like Trump 
or, or even kind of spiteful towards people that devote their life to service or devote their life to even working and you know providing service to others in any way he doesn't really understand it thinks you know, just thinks it's weird <clears throat> um, so you know no the one thing that the Republican Party will happily spend massive amounts of money on is a strong military and that's another classic political euphemism strong military what does that mean it means a big massive lethal force that has the ability to invade other countries throughout the world and maybe multiple countries simultaneously it has the ability to you know surveil just about any spot in the world and uh, has the ability to launch attacks missiles whatever from just about anywhere in the world to just about any target in the world so yeah now how is the ability to do that help humanity life on this planet If this sort of idea of the U.S. military was actually true, that everything that we did was like a force for good, you know, you know, the little guys getting invaded by this big country, so we come out and help the little guy, you know, we defend the defenseless, you know, we def we defend people trying to instill democracy want the right to vote and there's this other oppressors that want to retain power and not give the people the will in those cases we come and aid and assist as best we can with uh, a focus on minimal use of lethal force only when necessary to really be defenders of these people from this invading force, but not so much invading that other place. Less so that. But it's a fine line. War gets crazy and war only begets more war. <sighs> Problem is, of course, is that all those sort of ideas of we're the force for good, they're just ideas. We're not always a force for good. We've done some pretty horrifying things, in fact, throughout our history. We've done some really noble things, too. But many of the things we're doing right now are needed. Some are only causing more problems. So we're, it, it's not universal. It's not... It certainly isn't every single person who puts on a uniform is a hero. And that's going to ruffle some feathers there. I understand that. And I am apologize for ruffling any feathers but not every single person every single person who puts on a uniform is not necessarily a hero there are an extremely high percentage of heroes though and they don't even the ones that really are they prefer to not be referred to as it's slightly embarrassing to them but there are it's not a perfect system 
on who gets in to the military. So sometimes with the focus on strong military, certain sort of clear and obvious kind of, uh, you know, flaws in character can kind of be overlooked and certain sort of sociopathic tendencies can almost be encouraged in the case of the uh, Navy SEAL Gallagher that Trump pardoned or whatever got intervened and uh, you know that guy was uh, you know he, he was a murderer uh, basically he, he was you know had kind of the mind of a serial killer uh, who ended up joining the Navy SEALs um, and you know kind of got extra training on how to you know be a lethal force and so his fellow SEAL members, which SEALs never do, you know, actually spoke on the record about their concerns for their, you know, fellow SEAL member and how he was a very much a dangerous person. But, you know, Trump's the commander in chief of this strong military so you know the sociopathic cruelty and inhumane actions of one particular seal that the other seals objected to because they have a there's just a certain very particular code of honor among those particular individuals they are the elitist of the elite truly people truly just they're just wired on a different level they are human beings regular people but they put themselves through quite a bit uh, to become seals um, even people that have seen the show and stuff and seen get some base there, there's no way to possibly you know comprehend what it is they go through unless you do it yourself which I've never done and tried thought about the military bunch but just an immense level of respect for what those people do you know you're just a regular human being and then you put yourself through the absolute absolute extreme limits of what the human body can handle so that you can be the best equipped and, and able to do your job which is protecting the interests of the United States of America you know, it's a very noble job, and it's a job, you know, they don't really get paid a massive amount to put extreme risk on themselves in order to protect others, you know. So, it's very important that the people that are doing that job, you know, um, are in clear in mind and body and spirit and such. You know, the other SEALs that spoke out, obviously they were. They had concerns about this guy. He wasn't carrying himself with honor and uh, it was concerning to them so they out of duty spoke out about it you know when your focus is only strong military things like that can it they get you know overlooked or something you know this Gallagher guy in the seals then of course there's the many years ago the Bradley Manning video that was posted became a big thing and then it kind of went away after a while and but, you know, it's a video of, you know, um, American soldiers that are in some 
know, they're they're way off somewhere. So it's just the film of their far away camera. So it's missile capabilities. And you know, you see these couple people. It's a couple couple dudes standing in a standing in a street talking. Do they have guns at their side? I don't know. But it's like a street. They're not in, they're certainly not engaged in battle or anything. They're just kinda of hanging out there. There's there's no real assurance from the video that whoever these you know, soldiers that you can just you can only hear the audio. Whatever it is that they think the two men are, there's no way to know for sure. And that doesn't really appear like they have weapons, you know. They just kind of stand there talking, it looks like, you know. But, you know. I like commanding officer orders uh, the firing on those two guys standing in the street. And they all just, like, hoop and holler and get all excited. And, you know, it's like a damn video game. To them. Then a van pulls up. Two guys get out. They throw a blanket over the clearly and obviously now dead bodies. And uh, the American soldiers say things like, well, you're into, you know, you're in a war zone or something and whatever. And they fire on those. They were clearly people trying to provide medical assistance or in some form, you know, or, you know, kind of take care of it. And they were fired upon by American soldiers. Um, it's a video of American soldiers committing war crimes. Um, there's a video of it. And it was a guy that had, uh, you know, secret, top secret clearance and I was able to see and get access to a wide variety of things. And that was one of the specific things and he just posted it. WikiLeaks or whatever, and that video kind of, because you know there's been the United States military has been up to a lot of fishy things over the years and outright dangerous and inhumane things. On Iraq, um, you know, the United States of America's treatment of POWs was inhumane and violation of the Geneva Convention. Uh, there's certain rules for engagement. United States of America broke them um, and started just kind of getting more lax on what they look for in soldiers. So there's just a wide array of different types of people, plenty of people with great honor and de devotion to country, duty, duty to country. But, you know, there's a lot of others now in with these subsequent wars that have going on that are there for very different reasons. They're there because they want to be able to, you know, shoot the ragheads. And uh, there are U.S. Marines that, some, that Dulwich and stuff, heard it with my own ears from real live Marines that had just gotten back from their first, second tour and Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, you know, so, I mean, 
but that's kind of what war does, you know, it helps if you kind of have a certain hatred toward the group you're fighting, because there'll be times when you're supposed to be, it's a, this, anyone in that group, you're supposed to be fighting them, but there'll be times when there won't be a specific threat. You have to fill yourself with rage in order to go through it. Because maybe the person you're about to shoot, maybe they freeze and they just decide not to shoot you. You're going to still shoot them anyway? They put their gun down and put their hands up in the air. You're so filled with rage that they're the enemy. Maybe just go and shoot them anyway. Even though they are relieving themselves of being a threat. They are surrendering. So they have every right to do there's a certain way to deal with people that are swindering, and it's not to torture them and stuff. Nope, it's just to find shelter with them and basically take care of them. You have to keep them alive now, and then you can find out, you know, did they commit war crimes and stuff, or were they just defending their country? You know, we invaded Iraq, so the soldiers fighting us were uh, Iraqi citizens. And same with Afghanistan. There's probably plenty of people that are in Afghanistan fighting against America that aren't necessarily Taliban. They're just like, they just don't want us there. We invaded. Maybe, and maybe they don't understand or want to understand why we're there. Or whatever reason we think we're there. How we're, we think we're helping. Helping what? How? Which one's the enemy? How are you supposed to know? You know, they, they all wear specific uniform declaring themselves as whatever thing, like a team, you know. You got to use the uh, war analogies for sports and sports analogies for war. So it's just goofy. But because those wars in Afghanistan, that's something. But we're not fighting a, a specific enemy. It's various different tribes that have their own beefs with each other, but sometimes out of, you know, a common threat, us, they'll form these sort of uh, weird alliances just out of, uh, you know, that need for survival, you know, because we're invading their country. They, they want to control Afghanistan because they're ancestors of their their Afghani people, you know, they've they're the descendants of people that have been living in those in that area for long time, you know. So it's kind of very much a part of their identity, that physical place. So um yeah, they they don't want us there, uh, whether they're Taliban or not. So, you know yeah. It's very disconvoluted. We're just we're just too big. You know, I think we kind of forgot that, like, we're an industrialized nation. There's lots of other countries that aren't so industrialized, you know. And they've just kind of got a different way of life. And it's not really even so much that one's right or wrong. Although, we're getting into kind of a wrong. We're obviously way too big. Way too prideful of ourselves. We, we just think that, no, we know what's best for everyone. Well, no, we don't even know how to an elect a person that's qualified to be president. So what business do we have meddling in foreign entanglements right now? You know, um, 
we don't even know how to elect a competent person to be commander in chief. You know, the United States military has pretty rigid standards on usually on like how they promote people and how people become a an officer and all that kind of thing. But um, to be in charge of all of it, to be commander in chief of the entire United States military, it doesn't doesn't really require much of anything. You just got to win a, a particular type of election. Um, and you don't even need to get the most votes. You, you just got to win the Electoral College. Very, very odd, you know. Like, you know, if you want to become a general in the United States Army, you got to serve a long time in the Army, and you got to rise up through the ranks. Most likely, you would have uh, gone to you know, one of the officer candidate schools, you know, West Point, to start out, so you would have gone right in as an officer, and but then you would have, you know, slowly worked your way up, um, you know, over many, 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 many years, risen up to the rank of general. But to be in charge of all that, all you got to do is win the Electoral College. You don't even need to get the most votes. You just need to win the Electoral College. And you can become Commander-in-Chief of the United States military. The strongest military in the world. Um, capable of dropping missiles on just about any target for, at any time throughout the world. Uh, capable of invading multiple countries at the same time. Uh, it also has the ability to, uh, you know, provide natural disaster relief and such, although not as much lately because they're all off fighting foreign wars. So we can't use our military to, you know, help fight forest fires, say, or something, you know, on a more proactive basis. You know, they get, you get these tens of thousands of people with a wide array of skill sets that are basically just a big massive organization that solves problems you know because whenever they are sent to a war they have to figure out how to get there how to set up all the there's a it's a logistical behemoth so uh, forest fires in California is just another sort of issue that needs to be resolved what is the best solution to this particular problem and uh, you know what you do is you Army Corps reserves and then other and then you just yeah you, you, you start repairing how you need to repair it in the best way so that there's fewer forest fires. It is a, it's, you know, it's a mix of obviously not expanding development too much, but also like replanting, rejuvenating, and then like an, a, a, a massive coalition if, during fire season to fight them, you know, massive effort, you know, fight it from all flanks put them out quickly you know as quickly as possible but yeah if we're going to send people off to war I think they can handle fighting fires it's, it's just another type of enemy you know it's a big fire monster but uh, you know it's not that much different than a roadside bomb or a sniper from 2,000 yards away it's it's just another type of threat uh, so, the United States military is more than capable of being trained and learning how to 
aid and assist in forest fire season, and that's something they really have the capabilities of being able to do, but don't because we're, you know, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan and wherever the fuck else, you know. And last couple political euphemism cliches wanted to talk about bipartisanship. Did like a whole bit on bipartisanship a while back, but that's that's the big one. That's the big one. Bipartisanship means it's a bill that passes that has uh, support among both the Republicans which are the organization that protects the interests of the wealthy, and the Democrats, which is the other party. That's what bipartisanship is. So, I think it's good to be, to allow oneself to be a little more dismissive of what, of this, you know, this sort of grand idea of what bipartisanship is. It's not really anything all that special. In fact, it's kind of, eh. you know, I, I think it's neat if the people, if, if the organization representing the interest of the wealthy at the government level and the other organization uh, agree on things. That, that That's neat. Um, but, you know, on the most obvious level, you know, an organization primarily focused on protecting the interest of the wealthy. It would just seem like on kind of a day-to-day -day legislative agenda type thing that their objectives are just not going to, are rarely going to be aligned with an organization that's not focused primarily on the interest of the wealthy. You know, they're... They're not going to line up much. Um, bipartisanship sort of implies that it's like the middle point, the 50-50. The yeah, no, though, not really. <laughs> that's, that's not really... Because, again, the Republican Party, whatever people think it is, or whatever, well, I, I like the public because they're lowering taxes, minimal oversight. Public tax dollars are being spent to pay them to do their job in, in government and stuff. And it costs money for them just to be there. But, yeah, the, the Republican Party, though, they focus the, their interest on the wealthy. That, that's what they do. So, yeah. Um, it's not... Like, yeah, they, they do convince a lot of people to vote Republican. What that organization does doesn't really have any benefit to a vast majority of those people. So I think it's it's important to understand that bipartisanship is not really that important. You know, um, what does the bill do? What are the good points? What are the bad points? Bad points are probably going to be these sort of tax loopholes and nonsense that was added by the Republican Party. But sometimes they'll be added by the Democrats because there's a corporate wing. Democrats, it's important to understand, are just the other option. They're the group that, generally speaking, is not primarily focused on cutting taxes for the wealthy and corporations. 
but there is a corporate wing of the Democrats that sometimes very much likes the idea of corporate tax cuts. So, the wing that I'm more interested in uh, is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, still flies under the Democratic banner, but it's, you know, uh, more about universal health care, uh, free education, um, in the Green New Deal type, you know, things, you know, just uh, kind of a more of a government that's representing the people of the people by the people sort of thing. It, it's sort of the classic monsters of what the founding said, more like the idea of what America could be, um, you know, all those monsters that we recite all the time, a country that you have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, you have the rights to those things. You have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life. Yeah. Like like the people here that are living <laughs> in this country, we have the right to live. We, the people, you know, type thing. So that's more what the progressive wing is. You know, um, they're sh certainly not like punishing success or anything like that. Certainly not like embracing some idea of socialism or something. Certainly representing that like understanding that we're a mix of a capitalist society and socialist society and kind of a mix. We're hybrid. We're a, we're a big melting pot of different types of people. So we should be focusing on the people. And that's kind of the progressive wing. So, and uh, it's kind of the counterpoint to the Republicans that are like, we need to give wealthy people more money. You know, so again, bipartisanship though is just, it's a bill that has approval from both the organization that supports the wealthy and the other organization. That's it. That's that's all bipartisanship. So it's not this just grand, wonderful thing that we need to like worry about all the time. All right. I think I got that through it just in time. It's pretty good. Good way to start the day. Getting out some political cliches. Hopefully educational and whatevers. Um, yeah, stay safe out there. Happy Labor Day. God bless. This is Gary. Thinking out loud.